Well, I sure am glad you're here. Looks like you all are all surviving well, um, and I'm grateful that um, you're able to come and be a part. Listen, I want to kind of make just one special announcement, and uh, it's a pastor announcement. Um, so when we get people that talk with us or send us an email or something specifically about the area of marriage, unfortunately, we often get that email at a point of crisis. Um, sometimes, like, you know, like all of us do, we think, well, our marriage is hitting a rock, so we extend it, we live a certain way for a while, but then, like, hopefully it goes back to health, but sometimes it doesn't. And so we'll get marriages at this point of crisis. And so we decided a number of years ago that we wanted to begin to pray about what it would look like to uh, provide a ministry that would hit marriages, not just at the point of crisis, but before we ever got there, how to create healthy marriages. And so uh, we started uh, the engage, re-engage uh, marriage ministry, and, um, and we're doing signups for this right now. We've been doing it for several years. Several of the people you're worshiping with would be small group leaders in that. Um, and I just want to encourage you, if you want to give your marriage a shot in the arm, um, this would be a great experience for you to go through. Um, if your marriage is at a point of fragile fragility, this would be a good experience for your marriage to go through any way you want to go. So some of the best things you may be able to do for Valentine's Day is say, hey, I signed us up for re-engage. And I, I want you to know we push this ministry because we believe in it. And I would love, love, love to make everybody go through it, but then you all would hate me, but for all of us to go through it. So anyway, consider being part of Reengage. Uh, you, will, you will not regret it. It is not unusual for us to hear from couples that said, we were in counseling, Reengage helped us to be able to step away from that. So consider it for whatever, whatever that's worth, okay? Okay, Tom, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. Great. And so anyway, happy Valentine's Day. Even though you did not treat me with love just now, I'm still going to receive it. So there, there's actually a lot of controversy surrounding Valentine's Day, which I didn't know. But I was thinking about it because, you know, it's like 30 some odd years. Lisa and I have been married. And I think, well, you know, what am I going to do? Buy another box of chocolates or something? You know, what, what am I supposed to do? Do I have to keep doing this every time? I mean, so kind of did some research. And um, the ancient Romans actually may be responsible for this day called Valentine's Day that we're all celebrating, um, but it's not in a way that you think. You know, we're celebrating by like going, finding a card and, and sending like chocolates or flowers, and then we're trying to think of something romantic to say. But actually, it started with Emperor Claudius II, who executed two men on Valentine's Day. That's how this whole thing actually got started, and, and it was in the third century, and the reason he killed these two men was because they were ministering to Christians, and that was a no-no, and so he, he strung them up or, or whatever he did, and, and, and he was, they were persecuted under Roman rule. So the way Valentine's Day got started was the Catholic Church said, we need to remember these two dudes who died, and so they, they started Valentine's Day. So Happy warm, fuzzy day, everybody. You know, when you're looking in the eyes of the one you love, just tell them, oh, yeah, we're celebrating this because those two dudes who died. I mean, praise the Lord. This is a great day. So we've been looking at this corporate holy patterns thing, if you're just joining us. And basically what we're looking at is God somehow in his amazing design used us together and said, we don't just follow God alone, but together when we all gather, spiritual stuff happens that is important. Things like this happen. So Christianity is not just an individual sport. It's actually a team sport. And so we've been looking at this idea of what holy patterns are. And the surprising thing is many of us learned that Christianity involved other people amidst the pandemic. I think when all the smart people write books about all the lessons we learned during the pandemic, this is one of the lessons they're going to write about. 
Because we've tried to keep some semblance of normalcy for our families throughout this whole pandemic situation. We go out to eat and we go to sporting events. We, you know, make sure we all get our education. But church has kind of moved into the optional category for a good many people. And I understand some of that. However, what we're learning through this pandemic is this. And you all know this because I went through it too. But it's difficult to thrive spiritually when you're alone. It's not the same just to sit home and to watch what's going on and feel like you got the same boost. It's, it's difficult to experience, experience spiritual renewal when we're in isolation. And Scripture actually speaks to this. This is from Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says this, Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, if you buy this as the Word of God, and, and I do, what the Word of God is saying is this, I apparently need you in my life spiritually, and you need me. Apparently, we, we have to be together. You're part of my spiritual well-being, and I'm part of yours, even when we don't like each other. That's part of what the church is. Many of us discover, have discovered this kind of in this whole pandemic. Many of us are learning why this is in these days of isolation, Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation, which gave us an option outside of Catholicism, he, he was thinking of Christians trying to live in isolation. And he said these words. He said, at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathering together, all y'all, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. And that's been true, at least for my experience at times. Sometimes I'm home and trying to get something in my spiritual time, whatever, trying to find something, yeah, whatever. But man, I come in here and we worship together and someone in here just lights me up or the team will light me up and lead me in a way that I couldn't lead myself. This has all certainly been this unexpected lesson during the pandemic that many of us have learned. We've isolated for whatever reason, wisdom, fear, convenience. And our discovery is, dang, we, we actually need each other. <laughs> We actually need to do life together. Christians need to be together in order to thrive spiritually. Isolation for a season may be necessary, but it is no substitute for the church. So we've been going through these corporate understandings of ways we grow spiritually. The first one we talked about was confession uh, way back about three weeks ago. And confession was admitting our sins to ourselves, to God, and to others. And then last week we talked about guidance, and guidance was hearing God's voice, discerning His will in Christian community. Today, we're going after the role of corporate worship on our journey to spiritual renewal. Because like we've done for each of the holy patterns, we've placed a card in your seat. You can take that card home. If you're watching online, you can download these resources, and there's all kinds of ideas on that card. But here's how we're defining worship. It's drawing near to God through adoration and holy living. Y'all ever come to, to church and you look around at other people worshiping and wonder if your worshiper's broke? I mean, I look around some of y'all and you're like, man, you're in, I think God's going to take you in a moment. I mean, you're like swaying, you got your arms going back and forth. I said, oh my goodness, a holy chariot's going to come down and swoop that sucker up. And they're on their way, you know? I, and I, I'm sitting there watching some of you worship like that and I'm thinking, Man, when's the last time I cut my toenails? You know, maybe I should know. I've just, my mind's just wandering all. Sorry, that was a terrible illustration. But just kind of, my mind's wandering all over the place. I'm like, man, what am I going to have for lunch? You know, I'm, I have all these kinds of thoughts. And I think maybe, maybe I don't worship right. And maybe 
Maybe it's just me, but I look at you folks that have rhythm, and you're amazing. At least as one of y'all. You, you all have rhythm, and like, I can tell you learned to dance in unholy places before you ever found Jesus, but nonetheless, you all, <laughs> you all have rhythm, and, and I watch you all move to worship music, and I'm so amazed because you all make worshiping God look so cool. But if I try to dance to worship, I make worshiping God look inebriated. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing cool about what I would try to do with zero rhythm at all. I'm, I'm a guy who cannot beat, keep a beat. So the team asked me to clap. Someone beside me is going to die because I will miss my hands. Something bad is going to happen. I'm going to mess up. But these are the words of Jesus. These are red-letter words in the text if you were to follow them. The time is coming, Jesus says. Indeed, it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. And the reason that kind of has my attention is, these are Jesus' words, and he's explaining what the Father's doing. The Father's looking at the gathering of people, and he's saying, where are the ones who will worship me in spirit and truth? Not the ones with rhythm, not the ones who look the best, not the cleanest, not the dirtiest, not the perfect, not the imperfect. He's looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. When Jesus was being tempted by uh, Satan in the wilderness, you may remember there was this time when Satan said, hey, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you something. And you remember what Jesus said? He says, get out of here, Satan. That's really a tame version, but he was really very verbally, vocally, like saying, go away. Jesus said, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Despite my understanding that worship is an expectation and privilege in scripture, I struggled with worship for a long time. Even after the degrees came, I still struggled with worship. Back in the days when I was pursuing my education, um, God taught me this valuable lesson that I have found continues to replay in my life. Maybe it's because I'm a slow learner, but I continue to get this same message. So for most of my college and graduate degrees work, I had this simple goal, and it's not, I'm not proud of it, but it is true, and it's this, I wanted to know God and fish as much as possible. That's all I wanted to do with my life. Why Lisa married me, I have no idea, but that was what I want. She goes, what do you want to do with your life? Well, I thought I'd maybe know God and catch me a big old bass. You know, this would be an awesome life. That's what I want to do. And so I kind of had that experience for a while, but there is this interesting problem when it comes to knowing God. It's even bigger than that. There's an interesting problem when it comes to knowing something, anything. We talk about knowing mathematics or maybe knowing history, and Scripture talks about God's repeated actions so that we might know Him as well, including sending His Son, who, who is like us. However, I would suggest there are actually two kinds of knowing. One is to know, and the other is to know about. Not the same. There is much in my life I seek to know about. There are areas of my life that I want to increase in knowledge, and, and even areas that I want to master with my knowledge. When Lisa and I moved onto a little farm, uh, we were devouring books on like, how to put grass in a pasture, and how to make sure animals don't die in the pasture. And then we had to read, of course, 
what happens when they do die in a pasture? And then we started looking at it like, now how do we make sure that this thing thrives? And we just read everything we could read. Or, or maybe you looked at you know, gardening or woodworking or sports or whatever, and you're le- trying to learn new ways maybe to care for our bodies as, as we get older. And we just seek knowledge. And so what I've learned is this. In this level of knowing about, my goal, my agenda is control. I want to control this kind, with this kind of knowing. I want to control what happens on the farm. I want to control what happens to my body. I want to control my understanding of mathematics. Or con- That's a joke, I don't. But I want to control my understanding of history. It's control. So when you're in school, you study for a test, maybe in a subject you could care less about, And the reason you study for the test is to determine your control over that information. You want to control your GPA, or you want to, maybe you don't, but nonetheless, that's the goal. You want to maybe seek to retain it at least long enough for a test. And our role in this format of knowing is primarily that of an observer. Here's the information, calculate that information, try to memorize that information so that I can know about and I can control this. You think of a body of material or a skill set and then try to figure out how to master that knowledge for a test or, or for a career. However, that's not the knowledge when it comes to Christ. That's not what we're doing when it comes to knowing God. When we enter the arena of knowing God, we move from knowing about to knowing Him. And if knowing about is about control... I would say like any other healthy relationship, to know him involves surrender. If seeking to know about something is defined by control, then surely this other one, how I know him, is surrendered. When it comes to God, I don't think it's our business to capture him or dissect him or even to learn all the ways he operates so we can control him. I don't think it's our business to make God fit our theological constructs or restraints to put God in a box so we can fully understand him and then pass some kind of test at the end of life. I don't think it's our business to order God to meet our demands so he can become predictable so we can control him in whatever situation. And I've done all of these. Who hasn't prayed in a hospital room because we thought we were controlling God and he didn't do what we thought he should? You see, when it comes to worship, we aren't seeking to control God any more than we seek to control those people we love. If you've ever been out to eat with a couple where one was controlling of the other, I guarantee you, you talked about them when you left. Oh my goodness, could you believe she said, you know, that, that kind of, or how about this one? You ever, <laughs> you ever had like friends with kids come over? And the, and, the, and the spouse, like, tries to super control the kids. We call them helicopters, right? You know, they try to control the kids. Or maybe it's the opposite. <laughs> Why don't they control their kids? You know, we all have those kinds of discussion. But when it comes to relationships, usually control is not a positive word. Well, knowing God is like this human love. It's not controlling. It's surrendering. It's finding someone you love so deeply that you just want to be with them. Don't want to receive anything from them. Just be with them. And that's kind of what I think following God is. It's learning to surrender to his lordship in our lives. It's learning to love like he loved, to receive his love for us as we surrender that love, and we're able to love others as Jesus loves. 
Well, if we're to know Christ, if that's a possibility, then I'm pretty sure he's going to have to take the initiative because my natural bent is the controlling love. If God doesn't take the initiative, then I don't think we ever find him. This is actually from the Old Testament, some good news. This is from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah said, in those days when you pray, I will listen. Check this out. If you look for me, Tom, wholeheartedly, you'll find me. I mean, it's like God's terrible at hide and seek. Because if you just look for me, I'll tell you, here I am. You know, that's kind of what the verse is saying right here. You'll find me. You're not going to get lost. I'll be found by you, says the Lord. That's Old Testament. And then you go to the New Testament with Jesus' brother wrote the book of James. He said this, come close to God. God will come close to you. This is radically different understanding of knowing than prepping for a test or trying to master a certain body of information. And here is the danger zone to this entire discussion that I would suggest may be plaguing the modern church, may be plaguing people who are followers of Jesus even today. Unfortunately, my sentence is terrible. But nonetheless, here's the problem. If we use the one method of knowing in the other area, we will prevent the very thing we seek. In other words, we will never learn to worship God if all we are seeking is more information about God. This isn't another class we're engaging in. This isn't us trying to know about God so we can control God. You cannot put God in a box. We can construct systematic theologies, which I value, but in the end, God is even bigger than that. It never pays to underestimate God. We will always be the creation trying to understand creator. So let's just say you agree with me to a certain point in the message. Let's just say you would say, Tom, there are some things in life that I want to know about, but there are people in life and maybe God that I really just desire to know. What would that look like? I mean, how do we worship? How do we draw near to the presence of God through adoration and holy living? What would that look like? So I want to take you to a song that was written by a dude who never celebrated Christmas, never celebrated Easter, never read anything in the New Testament, and yet he's often described as a man after God's own heart. Psalm chapter 63 says this, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Did you notice that even in the Old Testament, the writer refers to God as his own God? He didn't have to do it. I mean, read the sentence again. He could have just said, Oh God, you're God. And it still would have been beautiful we still would have accepted it. Oh, God, you're God. But no, he says, you're my God. See, it's one thing to believe in the existence of God, and that's many of us. We would believe in the existence of God, knowing about, but it's another thing entirely to know God as your own. And I think that's a massive distinction in the modern church, maybe even here in the South. We got a lot of folks who know about God, but I wonder if we have a lot of folks who know God, who are intimate with God, 
the psalmist is saying God is not just something he knows about, but God is someone he knows personally. You are actually my God. We had a conversation this morning. We shared a cup of coffee this morning, and we rode to work this morning and listened to music together because you're my God. It's not just something I know about. Each new day provides another opportunity for his desire to be practiced, for his search to know God intimately to continue. And that he almost makes me uncomfortable with his language because it sounds so sexual. And he says, my whole body longs for you. And I say, ooh, when did that get into worship? In other words, what he's saying is this isn't just a mind trip for me. It's not just information up here. This isn't me trying to get a degree in you, God, in theology. This is me falling head over heels in deep and desperate love with you. That's what this is. I have to be with you. You're not optional. I have to know you and surrender to you. There is a dependency in this knowledge, this relationship, and this surrender. And then he says, I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. See, God is becoming, for the psalmist, a need, not a want. You're my God. My whole body longs for you. And when I'm in the sanctuary, I see you. And what does he see? Your power and your glory. And you think, I need that in my life. That has to be part of me, however many days I have. Like food or water are not optional for the psalmist, nor is God. And our desire to know God is so much a part of our lives that we instinctively move to meet that need. And then he tells the motivation for this strongest of desires. And now he's getting ready to peel back the layers and say, let me tell you why my soul longs, my whole body longs for this. And this is what he says. He says, your unfailing love is better than life itself. And I think, what planet are you on? What are you doing? Could you and I even be friends, psalmist? Can I even understand you? Because your unfailing love is better than life itself. I don't know if I have anything in my life better than life itself. Then he says, I'll praise you as long as I live. Lifting up my hands to you in prayer. Did you see? Do you see? Because of this truth, he worships. Lifting up my hands, prayer, praise. When I was studying this psalm, I wrote down on a page a question. What do I value more than life? I mean... Isn't most of what we are all doing as human beings, which I think is most of us, isn't most of what we're doing related to the quantity and quality of life? We're all trying to live longer and live richer. It's an unspoken rule that you will count my life successful if you hear Tom lived a long and healthy life and died in his bed with his boots on. And then if we ever hear of someone who doesn't get to live a long and healthy life, 
and we feel they got ripped off. Like life didn't work for them. We panic. And sometimes don't even become angry at God. Why didn't you heal them? Why didn't you fix that? Why did this happen? Who would dare violate what we desire, what we expect from life? The psalmist is saying, you know what? I have found there's something more valuable than life itself, and it's Jesus. Please, don't take this bait without processing it. What the psalmist is saying is, a person can get to the place where the presence of God is more valuable and important than existence. Where surrender to God is more valuable than life itself. And this was written a thousand years before Jesus ever came to Bethlehem through the Virgin Mary. And yet somehow this psalmist understood That there is something more valuable than life. So when the psalmist is saying as a person, me, 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 you, can get to a place where the presence of God is more valuable and important than anything. This man came to this understanding, this passion, without even knowing Jesus. And if that's true, how much more intimately might we be able to know God living in the age of the Spirit and the age of Jesus. Can you imagine? Back in this was written, the Holy Spirit visited individuals. It wasn't something that all of us carry. But now the Holy Spirit is someone we all carry if we're followers of Jesus Christ. This guy didn't even have the New Testament. You and I, we have it so much we recognize the sign at football games. John 3.16. Man, when that kind of knowledge of God is sought, where sin is confessed and one's relationship with God is pure, I would imagine we couldn't help but be filled with joy and praise and hands lifted up. And this is where the psalmist lands. He says to, the, to God, you satisfy me more than the richest feast. I'll praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you. Isn't that weird? You know what I lie awake thinking about? Dangerous question, granted. I think I lie awake thinking about the things I can't control. The psalmist says, I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you throughout the night. So I've been struggling this week for an illustration of what this love looks like, and maybe because I've struggled with it because it's so foreign for me to describe God this way, to love God more than life itself. And I've wrestled with it, and then I realized finally on Friday that maybe the illustration is actually right before us, something we're all going through together. I realized that this is Valentine's Day. Realized it on Friday. <clears throat> Now you know what I stayed awake at last night, <laughs> Valentine's Day. And we all celebrate love on Valentine's Day, don't we? 
I understand all of us have different experiences with love, and I don't want anybody to feel isolated in this, but here's what I determined. There are people that I love deeply in my life, a lot of people. It's not just restricted to my family, but if you'll allow me, let me just use my family for this illustration. If you said to me, hey, Tom, you will, you, I can guarantee you will live 50 years longer. Okay, however long you got, and then I'm going to add 50 years to it. But in order to get that 50 years, what you have to give up is this. One thing, and man, you've got my full attention. I have to give up loving Lisa, Rachel, Sarah, and Thomas, my wife and three children. You have no memories of them. You will not recall any moments of laughter or any moments of sadness. You'll recall no family dinners, no family gatherings, and you get 50 more years. And I realized I would never take that deal. Would you? I wouldn't take it. I'd rather live my life with them in love than live longer but without their love. So what I am saying is this. We may not have ever thought about it this way before, but there is something that all of us love more than life itself. The psalmist is saying God offers that kind of love. God offers a kind of love that one would not trade anything for. God offers a kind of love that marks certainty in a day where everything else is kind of a crapshoot. God offers a kind of love that defines security in a day where nothing else seems secure. God offers a kind of love that defines comfort in a day that's defined by discomfort. Worship is our wonderful surrender, acceptance, and even pursuit of that kind of love. Worship is drawing near to God through adoration and holy living, and that's what we do every time we gather together in a setting like this. So as I've been doing in this series, I have a whole other part to the message, but you won't stay here for it. So I'm going to pause, and I'm going to finish it up next week, and I'm so excited. All I will tell you is this, that, that worship is actually practiced for something much, much bigger. And I'll tell you next week what that is. But before I let you go, it's good to think about this. But if we don't put it into actual practice... So here is the practicution moment of the sermon. <laughs> what would it look like if you were to say, you know what, maybe some of what Tom was saying was actually true. Maybe I know about God, but I don't know God. And let's say you decide that you're going to start this journey with me, and we're going to try to deepen our understanding of worship. So I wrote down a few things. What does it look like to worship, to know God, and to surrender to God? Item number one. Practice the presence of God daily. And what I mean by that is if you haven't been seeking God at a personal level, 
then when the church gathers, it probably isn't going to hit you that well. So if you've been seeking God throughout the week in your little moments in whatever way you do, when you come to worship, man, your pump is primed. You're ready for worship. You're ready to together for us to worship and to experience God together because you've been doing that throughout the week. Here's the second thing. Prepare for gathered worship. I, I guard my Saturday nights. I'm not saying like I live like a hermit, but Saturday nights probably aren't the time I'm going to come to you for the midnight kegger, you know? We're probably not going to do that on a Saturday night. I'm going to try to be more sensible on that. So guard your Sunday mornings. Make your preparation for worship as focused as your worship For me, this involves even the music I listen to. I love listening to music when I get ready in the morning. But on Sunday mornings, the only music I'm going to listen to is some kind of worship music. It's not that the other music I listen to is bad. But it's Sunday morning. This is just a small way that I'm preparing my heart for worship. This morning, we were listening for you, all you old people like me. uh, Great is thy faithfulness. On the way in, we were listening to it as a hymn. It It was fantastic. Lisa and I had it sung at our wedding. I almost had a moment on the way in. Valentine's Day, everything. It was beautiful. Third, gather in the power of the Lord when you come. When you come to a place like this, let go of your agendas. Get get the critiquing judgment hat off. Oh, I like that, but I couldn't dance to it or whatever. Let it go. When we gather to worship together, the key word is not I. The key word is we. We are surrendering to God as we seek him. We are team worship together. Cultivate a holy dependency. This is going back to where we make the decision and the distinction of needing God more than life itself. I'll tell you a small way we practice this in our home. On the way to church every morning on Sundays when we come to worship, Lisa's riding, Thomas is in the back, And we get down here just before we break off into Chastain Road to get here. And Lisa will spontaneously start leading us in prayer. I don't don't close my eyes. So, so, but it's an open eye prayer. So, I mean, I I don't know if it counts, but I mean, that's, I do that. Um, And the prayer is simply this. Lord, we're going to see some amazing people today. And we express complete and utter dependence upon you for this day. As we gather to worship, we are dependent on you. The psalmist would actually say it a little later in Psalm 51 where he was repenting for one of the greatest sins of his life. And remember what he prayed? Create me a clean heart. But then he said this, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I simply cannot be without you. Learn the sacrifice of worship. There will be many times when you won't feel like worshiping. Hey, I write the sermons, and sometimes I don't feel like worshiping. I mean, sometimes I fall asleep in my own sermons. I mean, so I totally get it. Life is tough, and weeks change like the wind. And, man, this week has been a week that if I told you, uh, it would just be so distracting. I told my friends before I came up, I said, I just got to get this out of my system. This happened this week, and then I came up. Being with the people of God. Is saying, worship is a need. These are my people. This is where I belong. Together we'll come and worship God as we are. That's the sacrifice of worship. And lastly, worship begins with holy expectancy. 
and it ends with holy obedience. So now we have a note app. Many of you have journals and Bibles, and we take notes during the messages. The last note of any, any note page in, in any sermon, what do I do as a result of what I've heard? What do I do as a result of my worship experience today? Because I wasn't here to gain knowledge. I was here to deepen my relationship with God. What would he have me do? Next week, part two. Lord, thank you for these great folks and the high honor of this moment in time with them. Thank you, Lord, for their grace and listening today. And Lord, my prayer is that the Alive community would have our hearts and souls awakened to worship. Not music, not style, but worship. And we would find ourselves gathering in our relationship with you. Not to come hear someone talk about their relationship with you, but my relationship. And all of a sudden we'd find ourselves standing shoulder to shoulder with someone else and think, man, I worshiped in part today because of you together. So Lord, would you make that happen in our hearts and lives? Would you teach us surrender at this level? I pray for my friends who have spent the majority of their lives seeking to know more information. Oh God, in this moment, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you reveal yourself to them? Receive this act of worship we ask. In your name, amen.